And welcome, you guys, to a Fox 5 Mansion Murders Trial podcast. Thanks so much. This is our fifth podcast on this trial. We are in the fifth week of testimony. I'm Melanie Alnwick, along with my colleague Paul Wagner. Welcome once again, Paul. Hi, Mel. A lot to talk about. So it's hard to believe that we're at the end of the trial. Yeah, because we were told it would be eight weeks, but uh, they've moved right along. So uh, it's going to end up being, depending on how long the jury's out, about seven weeks, I guess, right? Yeah. I, a lot of people are wondering how long it will take them to reach a verdict. We'll talk about the jury. Yeah, never uh, try and predict right. a jury. <laughs> we'll talk about the jury a little bit later, but uh, last week the yeah. the headliner was Darren Wint. This week the headliner was Darrell Wint. Darrell Wint, who was the wild card, uh, reporters covering this. Of course, we all talk amongst themselves, ourselves, I should say, when we're sitting in there. Um, and um, we're all saying... Uh, Darrell Wint was the wild card that uh, Darrell had to testify and it was a secret all the way up until the end uh, until they finally called him to the stand and there was Darrell. And I think it was a surprise for the defense because the defense even said in one of the um, one of you know they have those conversations about evidence or what they can discuss before the jury comes in and there was definitely a comment from Judith Pipe, well, we didn't know Darrell was going to testify. So it was definitely a last-minute call. It's one of those um, legal questions that I'm not clear on. I don't think you are either as to whether or not they can keep rebuttal witnesses and rebuttal testimony secret until they pounce. And um, they had some secrets, and they had some additional evidence that we heard that you went, wow, okay, that's some interesting stuff. Right. So... <laughs> It's hard to figure out where to start. And yeah, I think we should just start so with, much. We should start with Darrell. Let's talk about Darrell. There were a number of defense witnesses, but we'll get to those in a little bit because yeah. I don't think they're as big news as as Darrell. Yeah. One of the things I did, uh, and some of it, and as I've been talking to other reporters about this too, is that some of it you just get into the weeds. And especially yes, just stay in the yes. grass because stay getting in the way, Paul. Because sometimes <laughs> I I do tend to get too far into the minutia. Yeah. That's and you can, because there's so much. I mean, they they throw so much at you. And you sit there and you wonder and you look at the jury and you're going, my God, are they getting this? Are they? What does it all mean to them? And somebody's going to have to wrap it all up. And that's what you know closings are for. But still, you really can get into the weeds. That's why when you cover trials, I think, you have to really just hit home with the high points of what was said, the stuff that we hadn't heard before or that we really think is important. What I did was, I just threw this together this morning, because I think this will help really condense who's telling the truth. I think that when Darren came on last week, we were surprised, maybe, we shouldn't have been, at how well-crafted his alibi was. Everything that the prosecution threw at him, he had an answer for. Except for the DNA on the knife in the basement and his hair in the bedding upstairs. Correct. So now Darrell comes on and tells a completely different story, and it really is going to be up to the jury who is more believable. But in my opinion, I think Darrell probably poked enough holes in Darren's story. Darrell, not the most credible or reliable of witnesses, we should say. Let's just say, I, I, I'm just going to state flat out, I've seen a lot of witnesses testify in my 30 years covering trials, and he was a terrible witness. Terrible witness. He had one- and two-word answers. He wouldn't expand on things. He, he wasn't trying to be helpful, in my opinion. He was hoping that the prosecution would lead him along and lay out the things that were going to prove where he was going to be. He didn't seem to want to help himself. Because, as I've said to others, um, that when it came time to question where he was on the 13th and the 14th, you think that back three years ago, he would have sat down and said to other people, where was I? Do you remember me being here? How about, you know, Anthony and Ikea? I was at your house. you remember what time I was there? Can, let's write this down. That, he didn't do that. He says he was never asked about his whereabouts on the 13th and the 14th. He was only asked about the arrest. Correct. And the events leading up to that. 
and I do feel that there was a significant uh, tactical move in that. We'll talk about that later. I want to show this because you have it. Yeah, we this finally. Is, this is our picture of Darrell. This is Darrell. We got this today. Uh, what's the best camera here? Uh, here, maybe We've got it there. No, uh, you got. It. There we go. Okay. And we're going to post this on our Facebook page yeah. as well, our Mansion Murders so podcast group page. So Darrell got a free pass out of the courthouse. So we had the courthouse exits covered with cameras, and he got a free pass out a door we weren't and didn't have access to. Uh, we complained. Uh, the court actually came back with a response. It said it was wrong, shouldn't have been done. Uh, we still don't know why MPD did it. Uh, they asked for it. I've asked MPD for a answer as to why they did it, and they said they're not going to comment on it. So um, we know he wasn't a protected witness. We have no information that any threats were against him. Um, but he didn't want his face on the news. But this uh, we acquired today. Uh, and, and this so is a mugshot. This is a mugshot. Uh, Darrell has been arrested many times. He's been convicted. He's an admitted pot dealer. Uh, so this is Darrell Wynn. Uh, so uh, we didn't get his picture the other day, but but here he is. And his priors came into play. Yes. There was an argument over whether they should come into play or not, but the defense won that argument somewhat. They weren't able to tell the jury everything that might make them believe that Darrell is a thug who committed these murders. But they were able to hear some of it. They did. Uh, Judith Pipe made it very clear right off the bat uh, when she was questioning him on cross-examination uh, that he had uh, assaulted a man uh, in Tacoma Park back in 2006. He said he was charged in 2007. He was convicted, and he spent time in prison. She also got him to admit that he had been convicted of possession with intent twice, and he admitted on the stand, I believe in both cross and direct, that he was a, a pot dealer and that he kept a burner phone uh, for his dealings uh, with marijuana in the T Tacoma Park area. What was really interesting were the arguments about how far the defense could right. go yeah. because they wanted to be able to say this was an assault with a knife, that he stabbed this witness, and that it was because the witness was a snitch. When they said that in court, the jury was not there. People in the gallery gasped when they heard what he had done. Clearly prejudicial, but they, the judge listened to the arguments and said, you can say that there was an assault. He only pleaded to unarmed assault. So there was a, almost, uh, the judge characterized it like, we're not going to have a mini trial yeah. on this 2006 event. Right. I'm going to let you mention some of it. You can't mention the knife. You can't mention – initially, she said you uh, what, you couldn't mention gang affiliation, but they did have to bring up that he was oh, part did. of the Maple Avenue crew. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, he did admit that he was part of the Maple Avenue crew. Um, uh, but uh, what Judith Pipe wanted to make clear to the jury, not only was it violent, but that he had attacked this guy because he was a witness. OK, and I, I think the argument back and forth between Laura Bach and Judith Pipe was was whether or not he was attacking him because he had been a witness or because he was a snitch. And uh, it's you know, you're drawing a real fine line there. But it's it's my recollection that the the issue was, was he retaliating against him because he had testified against his friend or whether he would uh, testified or whether or not he had spoken to the police and his friend who happened to be another witness Correct. in his trial so brandon cooper that was another thing that we learned that i don't believe the jury heard not only brandon cooper but garnett williams may be part of this maple avenue crew the defense even alleging that chelsea nunez is part of this crew as well uh, that was the question. I recall that being a question out there. I recall Darrell saying that Chelsea hung with them but was not a member of the crew. Okay. Yeah. So the issue goes to, and I just looked it up here in my notes, whether or not there is a corruption bias. So the judge had to go and look at what constitutes corruption bias. 
a propensity or willingness to thwart the truth in a court proceeding. And, and clearly what Judith Pipe here is trying to show is that Darrell Wint was capable of being a violent man. Right. Ignore what Darrell Wint says. He has a corruption bias. Yeah. They can put him up there on the stand, but don't believe a word he says. That's, the, that's what she's trying to get across to the jury. Now, Darrell didn't help himself. Uh, one and two word answers. He constantly said, I don't remember. He said probably a number of times. Um, he can't remember where he was on the 13th, the night of the 13th, going into the 14th. He could have been at Odalis Lounge. He could have been at, what's the other one, Society? Society. Society Bar or something like that. Here's where I think the prosecution, if the jury is perceptive and paying attention, which they certainly appear to be, when Detective Owens was on the stand, she asked Detective Owens about the 13th. and the, I'm sorry, about the 14th. Mm-hmm. She said, you remember that day, don't you? Why? It was my 53rd birthday. Significant event to mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. You remember days that are significant events to you. Yeah. If the day is not significant because it's pretty much like any other day and you're not working a steady job, can you say where you were three years ago down to the hour of what you did and where you went every single minute? Well, Maybe you and I could because we could go back and look at what story we did that day. Right. And we maybe had we work could. Records. There's but if something. You were just goofing off yeah. on, a, on a random. Let's say it was a weekend when right. you weren't working. Yeah. And there was nothing significant to tie your memory to that day. Yeah. It would be pretty common for any one of us to say, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know. But here's my argument on that. If he, he said that on the 26th of May, he was called into the U.S. Attorney's Office right. to, to talk to the prosecutors and that he said he went in there multiple times, you know they had to ask him where he was on the 13th and the 14th. He says they didn't. Really? Now, maybe then he did, but he says when he talked with Detective Owens, Detective Owens wasn't asking him about the 13th and the 14th. They were only asking him about Darren and the events leading into the arrest. On the other hand, if you are a drug dealer, you're probably high most of the time. <laughs> Maybe you're not because you got to keep track of your money. But it would be believable for me as a juror to say, the dude doesn't know where he is half of the time. That doesn't necessarily make him a liar. And then they were able to bring other witnesses and other evidence in that supported his memory True. point for point. So yeah. I want to go through yeah. the parallel. Darren's whereabouts and what he said he was doing on the 13th mm-hmm. and 14th and what Darrell said he was doing on the 13th and the 14th. And just to remind people why this is important is because the defense is claiming that Darrell was the mastermind behind all of this and that he was at the house with Darren. And so they had to try and impeach Darrell on the stand. I don't think they caught him in a lie. I, I, I didn't notice any lies. other than I noticed a few lies, but they didn't point them out to the jury, which was surprising to me. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, what stood out to me was the I don't remembers and one one and two word answers and maybe and probably. Mm-hmm. He kept using all those words. Right. So let's start with Darrell's testimony. He says on the 13th, he went to Unity Trash and Recycling. He went about four or five in the morning because you have to go there to try to get on a truck. He had signed up as a day laborer the day before. They can verify that. They have right. records that he went on the 12th. He went on the 13th to try to hop on a truck to work that day. But he couldn't get on the truck because they didn't have any space. Right. So there was a stipulation that Unity Recycling does not keep records if you don't actually get on a truck. Mm-hmm. He's a day laborer. He's a day yeah. laborer. So they don't have any record of that. Mm-hmm. Then Darrell said he went to his friend Ant's house in Gaithersburg. Right. And then they, he was there for some unspecified period of time. Right. He's a, and let me point out very quickly that Judith Pipe brought out to him, to Darrell, that he had given the prosecutors two different times of when he was in, in Gaithersburg. Yes. Once he said 9 o'clock in the morning, another time he said noon. So, and it, just to point that out. Right. So, and that's her job. She's pointing out inconsistencies in his testimony. Right. So he says he goes to Ann's house. And then he said at some point he went to pick up his son at Tacoma Park Middle School. Right. And they hung out. They played some ball, maybe went to the rec center. He's not clear on how much time. He said he doesn't really know how that day ended, but ordinarily he drops his son off then at the son's residence. Mm-hmm. 
And then maybe he went out to a bar. That was his night on the 13th. Right. Darren said that at 6 a.m., he met Darrell at PCM for that drywall and painting job, right. that he wasn't needed, but that Darrell needed his van, that Darrell gave him the ride. They went to breakfast. They stopped at Garnett's house. Then he dropped him off at Ed's house in Southeast. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, too. Right. Then that's where he was stranded there. He started drinking. He fell asleep. He woke up at 1 a.m. Then he went back to sleep. Now it's May 14th. Right. Darrell says he doesn't really know what he did the morning of the 14th, right? That was kind of unclear. So that's where people might think he, he doesn't, he doesn't have an alibi. Yeah, because he can't remember where he was through the night of the 13th into the 14th. He could have been at one of those two bars, and then he could have stayed out all night long. Uh, Darrell, um, excuse me, Darren said he woke up at 10 in the morning that Darrell showed up with the Porsche and drove him to Woodland Drive, and that around noon he admits that he was seen going under the garage door of the Savopolis house, that he admits that was him. And this is where you and I agree that this was a key part key, of... absolutely. Key part, because what they did is prosecutor shows a receipt for a pizza delivered to 802 Malibu Drive in Silver Spring just after noon on the 14th, paid for with Darrell's credit card and using Darrell's phone Number That's about the same time. 12.16 p.m. was the receipt. Glar Darren says that at around that same time, he's going into the garage and Darrell is meeting him inside the garage. And we should point out that Darrell's phone has never pinged anywhere near 3201 right. Woodland Drive. And they were able to bring that evidence in after Darrell's testimony to show and support where his phone location was. So that's key right there. Yes. If the jury believes that... Darrell had his phone with him that mm -hmm. whole day, as opposed to the defense's theory that Darrell gave his phone to Garnett Williams and right. told Garnett to drive around right. Maryland with it. And make multiple phone calls, because one of the things that is you're sitting in court that we can see that ne don't necessarily make it into the news stories is that I saw the phone records and Darrell's phone was busy all day long on the 13th and the 14th, making calls, incoming calls, text messages. And Laura Bach did a good job of pointing out certain calls that were made to certain people that he was able to identify and said this was called to Brandon. This was a call to Garnett. This was a call to Jasmine. This was a call to my friend's girlfriend. Right. Right. So the jury saw that and saw that his phone was busy all day long. Was that really Garnett making all those calls and receiving all those calls? That's what the defense wants you to believe. Yes, they do. In contrast to Darren, who's. Social media and phone were dark for 36 hours. Went silent. Yep. Nothing. The next morning, Darren said he left the house. He was angry with what his brother wanted him to do. He went to get on a bus, but Darrell picked him up in that Porsche and said he was going to take him to his van. They went to Hyattsville. His van wasn't there. He was mad. He got the tow truck, went to D.C. with some address that his brother gave him, right? Right towed the van back to Hyattsville. Why? Why wouldn't he tow the van back to his residence, to right. his dad's house? Right. For some reason, he tows the van back to Hyattsville. He can't find the keys. He's pacing around the parking lot at the church behind La Fontainebleau. This comes into play also, right? Now, Darrell said it's, he doesn't really know where he was. He, his phone records show he was at Garnett's all day. At some point, he got a text from Darren, but it wasn't Darren's phone number. And remember, the tow truck driver lent Darren his phone. Right. So that was his first communication, he says, with his brother that day. In the evening, they meet up late at Dennis's house. So that's when Darrell gets pulled into this, according to his testimony. That's right. And so uh, at this point... Uh, Darrell says that he takes Darren, who has a bucket, and they go to a gas station. And Darren fills the bucket with gasoline. They then get into the car, and Darren tells him to drive over into the area of uh, Metal Fab, where he used to work, right? right. 51st and Froelich. And uh, he says, Darrell tells the jury that Darren gets out of the car, doesn't ask him where he's going. He's gone for about five minutes. He doesn't know where he's gone. 
And then he comes back, and he gets into the car with the bucket, and then they drive off. And as they're driving off, Darrell says he saw a puff of smoke in the distance. <laughs> puff of smoke. Now, we're all sitting there going, what is this? We're trying to th- no, wait a minute. We're saying to ourselves, no, this doesn't make any sense because the date doesn't match up with the burning van. And then we realized, we oh, we remembered wait the, a minute. about the burn pile. He burned something else. So Laura Box says, well, did you ask Darren what he was doing? He goes, no. Why not? I don't like to get into other people's <laughs> right. business is what he says. Right. And we're to believe that, that Darrell. I believe it. That he doesn't care. He doesn't want to know what Darren is up to. Right. And he didn't ask him what he was up to. And then they drive off. Right. They go back to Walmart. Then they go to Walmart. So now, no, we know that. They went to Walmart first. So well, first, that's, that's unclear yeah, no, as to it's, exactly. It's not. Really? It, absolutely. They went to Walmart first because. Then they bought the yes, gas? They went to Walmart first. Okay. Darrell needed to pick up some supplies because he was going to start his painting job at right. PCM. Right. At, at George Washington, the contract at George Washington. They showed the receipt where he picked up painter's pants. Right. And gloves. gloves. And that was also when they showed um, Darren with wads of cash paying right. for something. Right. So then, help me with so this cuz you They went to Walmart twice. All right. I saw so, the videos. All right. Just to remind our listeners. Mel has been there in the mornings, I've been in the afternoon. So we are not seeing sometimes the same and Sometimes we don't get a chance to fill each other in on all the little details. So there were two, So wait a minute. So you it's your understanding that the burning of the pile happened when? In between the two visits to Walmart. Okay. All right. That wasn't clear to me. And I'd have to go back to get my exact times. I do have them. But they went to Walmart. They bought some stuff. Yeah. Then Darren said, hey, my car ran out of gas. I need to go over there. So they went somewhere off Kenilworth Avenue. And Darren even testified that they went to a, some residential area and just hung out for a little while. Then they went back to Walmart because... Darren needed to buy a new backpack. Because we saw in the testimony yesterday by MPD uh, Detective Mike Bavero. Mike Bavero. He, uh, Laura Box, showed a picture of a burned pile. We had not seen that before. Right. It was 100 feet away from where the minivan was set on fire at 51st and Froelich. And and exactly the jurisdiction is unclear to me. And when you go put it into right, the, it the maps, it says Bladensburg. Right. It could be Tuxedo Park. Uh, it could even come up as Hyattsville. Right. Anyway, so what you saw in the photo was a burned pile. There were grommets and there were zip ties. And uh, Christopher Brockman uh, zeroed in on the picture. He uh, he expanded the photo so that you could uh, uh, focus in on it. And uh, so what they are insinuating or trying to get the jury to believe is that the grommets came from the backpack, which may have contained some evidence that Darren didn't want anybody to see. Right. And that's that's why he needed the the new backpack. When they went back to Walmart. And they didn't say it during that testimony, but they are hoping the jury makes the connection that the injuries on Sava Savopoulos's wrists were consistent with something that was hard, like a zip tie or mm-hmm. handcuffs, mm. not something soft like a necktie or tape. Well, what's interesting is that I saw the photo and there, there were unburned zip ties there in that pile. Yes. There were three or four of them. Pieces of them. Yeah. And, and he, also they mentioned some snaps, like might be on button jeans. No, but there were grommets and then there were snaps. There were there were two different types of metal, okay. so something that could have been on clothing. The defense tried to say... Did you see the picture too? I did. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, defense tried to say maybe it, could it have been from a belt because Darrell bought a belt. And he did. Bruckman also uh, focused in closely on the end of the zip tie where it has the ridges to show that it was a zip tie i think is that the ridges that we think were on savas's hand i did not see those autopsy photos so we'll have to ask some of our colleagues about that okay so daryl's got his story darren's got his story Mm -hmm. then they had brought on a couple of witnesses to they really needed to support 
Durrell, the prosecution did. Oh, yeah, big Don't time. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And do you, in your opinion, did they support him? They did. Um, I think um, there were a number of things that supported his story. Uh, the phone records, for sure. Um, yeah, I have notes on that. Uh, I think um, uh, the receipt, you and I agree, uh, the pizza receipt uh, certainly helped him. They brought on Anthony, his friend Ant. Yep, Anthony was there. Oh, the YouTube video. Right. So, so the YouTube video that came into play here was uh, he claims, uh, Darrell claims that on the 13th, he went to Gaithersburg to see this new video that Anthony had just made, and they were going to upload it to YouTube. The date on the YouTube says May 13th, 2015. Yeah, well, you and I both saw it. We found the video. They showed a still shot of the video to the jury. And uh, Anthony confirmed that that was the video and that Darrell was there to see it with him. And the phone records as well show that Darrell was in Montgomery County, that he was in Gaithersburg, that he was in Tacoma Park near the school. These were all location. This was all location data. Right. Yeah. Aside from all the phone calls and text messages that he had on that phone that day. Right. There were a lot of questions about... Why didn't police confiscate Darrell's phone and do a phone extraction? That's a big deal to the defense because other phones they've taken and they've done that forensic extraction so they can say exactly what was on it and what had been deleted from it. They never confiscated Darrell's phone. Some people think that might have been a mistake. They did a search warrant for the location data for his phone, Mm -hmm. but they never actually... So when they were interviewing Durrell they looked at his phone Laura Box said that she looked at it and Durrell testified he showed it to investigators he showed it to the prosecution he went through it and showed them the relevant things but they never Mm -hmm. independently looked at that phone the defense wants you to believe that there might be something else on that phone that they're hiding yeah that's a legal issue question that I can't answer. Right. We're just going to have to go by what they said well, in court. I just, you know, they. I know from covering this case for three years, I'd go down to court and I would go through all of the records that they had filed and all of the discovery letters that were sent, which gave us some, some leads to follow. And they filed search warrants for multiple phones. But multiple. Not his. Why not? Yeah. It is a question. And there was also the question among us in the media, why didn't Darrell testify to the grand jury? Yeah. And that's just a theory on our part. We have theories. We have theories. I am hoping that when this trial (laughs) is over, that we will get some more information that the prosecution and the defense Hope maybe they'll even come and talk to us here on this podcast. Well, Steve. maybe they will. Um, that would be up to the U.S. Attorney, Jesse Liu, I'll, to I'll allow that. You, but my I'll, theory I'll is this. Ask, I'll let you put in the request. All right. Here's my theory. Uh, I, I think it was a strategic legal move uh, so that um, – and, and let me take a step back. They interviewed Durrell several times, right? Yes. Down at the U.S. Attorney's office. And I think they realized that this guy was not going to be a good witness for them. They mm, they looked yeah. at his record. He didn't seem like a very good they witness. interviewed him. Um, he's not the he's not a guy that likes to deal with law enforcement uh, uh, because or, he's, or his dealings with law enforcement have never been uh, let's just say never been a positive interaction. Right. And so, at that point, uh, perhaps they come up with a strategy and they say, "Let's not put him into the grand jury because we're going to need him." to testify in our case. And if we don't put him into the grand jury, there's no record of what his story is. So that throughout the trial, if you've been following it, um, many, many times the defense has re-questioned a witness by taking their grand jury testimony up yes. to the stand, showing it to them didn't and saying, say- didn't you say on this date in the grand jury... And trying to either impeach them or get uh, a more accurate answer. Well, the defense couldn't do that because there's no grand jury testimony. Right. And so it played and right into the hands. Move. Yeah. There may be another reason. Okay. And it may be that initially they did suspect 
that Darrell was involved. Laura Box said to the defense in that whole argument over whether Darrell had a corruption bias mm -hmm. that they turned over pages and pages of documents about Darrell because they investigated him thoroughly. Mm -hmm. If you think someone might be a suspect, I do, again, I don't know. Yeah. Because Darren didn't testify to the grand jury. There may be, maybe that's why Darrell also didn't testify to the grand jury. And then later, they figured out this information that he may be telling the truth. I don't know. But they said in court that he never refused to go into the grand jury. That's right. You're right. Right? They. Oh, you're right. Thank you, Paul, for reminding me. They said we told him not to testify to the grand jury. Right. So they admitted that it was their call. Yes. The reason for their call was either tactical or they just weren't sure yet. My gut from watching these U.S. attorneys in, in action over the years that it was probably strategic. Maybe we'll find out at the end. And if it was you know. strategic, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was. Because Judith Pipe had nowhere to go except for listening to Durrell and whatever he said. So, uh, you know, this this is a big trial, and, and it's uh, uh, if they if the U.S. Attorney's Office gets a win, um, I have a feeling they'll come out and, and maybe answer some questions for right. us. Let's take a couple of questions here on our Facebook page. I'm going to try to pull it up, too, to see. <clears throat> Was the jury taking notes today? This is from Leslie Carmings, and Leslie is very active on our Mansion Murders Facebook group. Was the jury taking notes while the rebuttal witnesses were testifying? If so, then they will catch the final details that prove Darrell Wint was lying. I have found the jury to be very, very attentive. Very, yes. And I've seen them furiously scribbling at points. So, yes, they are very attentive, and, and they're all taking notes. I don't know if you have an answer to this one, Paul. Uh, you cover these cases a lot more than I do. This is from Debbie Danner Burrier. She says, will crime scene photos be released to the news media after the trial? Not photos of the victims. They should never be public, but photos of the house and evidence. What are the D.C. laws about evidence after a trial? Um, the answer to that is yes, they will be released. Once uh, evidence is uh, put into a court of law, it immediately becomes a public record. Now, we're not seeing it as the trial goes along because a judge will not allow that. Um, however, once it's over with, we will and should have access to all of the evidence, including all the photographs that have been shown to the jury. Um, so, w Would they ever seal the victim, the autopsy photos? Certain things that might be... You know, you might get a request from the U.S. Attorney's Office to the judge to say that the autopsy photos... Um, I don't know what the legal argument would be, but the judge does have some leeway in deciding whether or not some things should be released. They might... Maybe the judge would say um, to keep the family from reliving this experience. Uh, well, there are certain things that we would never publish. Oh, anyway. sure. Right. Yeah. But there's always a fear that someone would take that and put it onto some kind of an Internet site. Right. People that, would. yeah, uh, some rogue actor, uh, you know, would, would do that. And then, then they're out there and there's nothing you can do about it. You, that bell has rung, as they say. So we'll have to see. But... Um, uh, absolutely, uh, these photographs uh, that that Mel and I have seen, we would like you to see too because it, it does uh, help you with the case. Sure, certain things like the pizza crust that was really, <laughs> honestly, do you think that if they didn't have the DNA from the pizza crust that they would have been able to put this together? Good question. Um, I say yes because, yes, because they would have had his DNA on the vest and the Porsche. True. And once they had his DNA in the vest in the Porsche, that would lead to them getting. They still would have gotten. Uh, it they out still of would have system. gotten a suspect, right? Because out of the CODIS his system, is yeah, that his DNA was in CODIS, and um, because we know that they had a good profile off the vest, uh, they would have found him that way. We also heard yesterday from another a witness who was recalled. So it's interesting in the rebuttal case, they're able to kind of bring people back and say, mm, "Let's clear this up. Let me add a little bit more to." Right to those things. 
they brought back Lori Atkinson, right. the woman from La Fontaine Blue. Right. Her testimony also interesting because they showed her video of the parking lot mm -hmm. out there. Now right. remember, Darren admitted that that was him that Lori saw. Mm -hmm. She testified she saw a man who resembled Darren Wind in the white shirt who was making her and her coworker nervous that he was pacing back and forth so they didn't want to go out to their cars until he left. He said, that was me, right? Didn't he, he, he admit did. that? He did. And yeah. he said what? Why was he there? He was there because he was trying to get Wi-Fi onto his phone. Oh, yeah, always trying to get Wi-Fi. And uh, that he didn't have the keys to the van, and he was uh, waiting for Darrell or looking for Darrell. Uh, I'll remind you, though, that Lori also said uh, during her first time on the stand that she didn't think that the video that was released to the media immediately after of the guy running away down the side of the building with a bucket was Darren. That's a little weird. But now we're going, wait a minute. Who was the guy Dar with the bucket? <laughs> Darren had a bucket, according to Darrell, that he filled with gasoline. But the guy with the bucket was wearing a black hooded jacket. Yeah. And Darrell at Walmart with Darren was wearing a black hooded jacket. Yeah, but Darrell was huge. Okay? Yes, he's a big man. Darrell admitted so, that he's big. He's six foot two. He said at that time he was 200 pounds. Now he says he's 240. Now, Lori Atkinson said that the man that she saw in the parking lot was a muscular man. Uh, but she also described Darren down to his hair, the way he looked, the way he carried himself, the right. clothing he was wearing. The guy pacing. And she says that the video of the man running away with the bucket was not Darren. But he I had a hood on. Yeah. So that's a big I think that's still a question. But the reason they brought Lori back is they showed surveillance video of the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And they showed surveillance video of her friend's car and her car leaving the lot. Mm -hmm. And they asked, do you see a minivan? Right. No. Right. Did you see a minivan? Right. No. That refutes what Darren said. The reason his minivan, according to the prosecution, wasn't there is because it wasn't there. Right. He never towed it back. Right. to that parking lot. No, because, because he, he, in, in he there, drove the in, Porsche. He drove the Porsche. Right. 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 So I think that was a good thing for them to bring her back on. Yeah, because that's video that we were wondering, well, where did that video go? Because we'd never seen it, and they didn't show it when she was first introduced on the stand the first time. So we were. Did they lose that video? Well, why? I mean, they have to bring that video. They couldn't have lost that video. And then the other witness they brought on yesterday to sort of refute Darren's stories was somebody from American Iron Works, one of the vice presidents. I missed that one. Yes. So you tell me what happened and there. And he he testified that Philip Savopoulos was living in Saint Croix during the time that Darren went was working at American Iron Works. And that's important because he said it was Philip Savopoulos, the, the older man, right. the father, who would come through the, um, the shop. Right. And people would point him out and say that's the owner. So they're impeaching Darren's testimony by saying uh, Philip wasn't even there. Wasn't even there, that he lived in St. Croix. So the man they brought on was Stephen Ash... He's retired now, but he worked there for a long, long time. Uh, he says that Sava was running the Hyattsville office every single day mm. because Philip was in St. Croix. Mm. And I wanted to also talk about that because there were some people on our Facebook group that had a lot of questions. They thought that Sava and Amy had moved to St. Croix for a brief period of time. Yeah, we had heard that too. So, again, what you hear in rumor yeah. and stories until you see it in court what they say in court is true. So it was Philip yeah. who had moved to St. Croix because yeah. American Iron Works opened another subsidiary there. Yeah. That's why he was in St. Croix. Before we forget, uh, the other witness that you saw I didn't see was the police officer who said that he'd gone oh to 16 goodness. Atlantic Street. That? that was the other, probably yeah. the other biggest. That was my lead yesterday. Yeah, at 5 o'clock yesterday, that was my lead. And we had video, we finally got video of 16 Atlantic Street. So uh, Darren claims that he passed out through the night on the 13th. He woke up around 10 o'clock on the 14th 
and then Darrell later came to pick him up in the Porsche. That's his story. However, that kind of got blown away by this police officer who took the stand. So you saw that testimony. I would say blown away, maybe. All right? So the police officer, and I don't know how they got this information. It's crazy that they actually, (laughs) that this actually happened, right? The address of Ed is 16 Atlantic Street Southeast. Right. Turns out that 9.38 in the morning on May 14th, there the D.C. shot spotter system right. detected shots fired, gunshots fired at 16 Atlantic Street Southeast. At 9.38. At 9.38. Right. Police officer who's a rookie cop. He just graduated from, just graduated from the academy, but enough that he was out on the street. They asked him about this because they wanted them to... They wanted the jury to know that he would be very, very careful with his procedures. Mm-hmm. He testified that you go to the address, you look around for evidence. If you don't see any shell casings, then you look for people. If you don't find any people, you go and knock on a door. Yeah. The only address he had was that address. Right. Now, here's where the hole might be. His report did not say, I banged on the door. His report only said that he didn't come into contact with anybody. There was nothing there. So they had to question him, if you had come into contact with anyone, would you have written it down? Yes. Mm -hmm. What is your normal procedure? Mm -hmm. Again, he doesn't have a specific recollection of that day. A normal day for him. Pretty normal day, he testified, in 7D, Mm -hmm. that you might go Mm -hmm. for a report of shots fired. Mm -hmm. But he was a rookie cop. He wanted to be very careful about what he did and didn't do. So he testified that what you do is you go and you knock on the door. And Christopher Bruckman said, well, how do you knock? Do you knock lightly or do you? And he took out his metal baton Mm -hmm. and showed it how he would use the back of it to bang on the door. He said, normally loud enough to wake up an entire apartment building. Have you ever seen the police knock on doors? Oh, yeah. It's it's not it's not something you would sleep through if you were inside that residence. And that's the point. And didn't Laura get this from Darren? She did. She said, Smart. wouldn't you have heard? Because she knew she had that evidence she before did. when she asked that question. Set him up. She said, wouldn't you have heard footsteps or gunshots that morning? And he said he would have. Right. Because he was claiming he wasn't passed out. He was just sleeping. Which, again, is an anomaly for him because he testified most of the time he got up at 5 or 6 in the morning, went out to look for work, yeah. and then went to well, the Well, he's got a hangover home. at this point, if you believe his story. Right. He'd been drinking all night. So he got up at 1 a.m. and then fell back asleep until 10. Yeah. But at 9.38 or 10 in the morning, yeah. apparently, they did have to stipulate that the gunshots didn't actually come from Atlantic Avenue. Later, they found out it was a block away. Oh, but it I wouldn't didn't hear matter. That. Okay. But the point is, is it wouldn't matter because that is the address that the police officer had. That is the address he responded to. Yeah. Well, see, shot spotter, the way that works, it triangulates. It triangulates the noise of the gunfire into a computer system, which then tries to pinpoint where that gunfire is coming from. Generally, it's very, very good. Right. And they got it within a block. Yeah. So want to see if there's any other questions here from our group. Uh, While you're looking, uh, I'll just say yes. for people that have been following along and wondering about it, um, the courtroom, uh, we've noticed uh, every single day there's a family member there. Yes. Uh, Philip hasn't been there the last few days. Mm-hmm. We have not seen him, um, and we have not seen his wife. She has not been right. in there, right? Right. Uh, however, someone else is sitting in there. We don't know who that is, if that's his brother. he, I believe, is a family attorney. And I only say that because I've seen him several times speaking with Philip and Gail, and they speak in Greek, so nobody can hear what they're saying. Oh. Nobody can tell what they're saying. I, I don't know Greek, so. Interesting. It's all Greek but Amy's me. father has been there every single day through all of the testimony. The girls have never shown up. Right. We've not seen Abigail or Katerina. Right. So. I, I, that's understandable to me. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Traumatic event in their life. This yeah. is a good question from Jennifer Arado Rush. If found guilty, what length of sentence could Darren be expected to face? I checked on that just a few minutes ago. According to uh, Bill Miller, the spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office, that Darren Wynn is facing life without the possibility of parole if he's convicted because of the aggravating circumstances. The aggravating circumstances, and the aggravating circumstances are that it was a, a robbery. Um, and that he had uh, uh, taken uh, uh, the money uh, from the house and he had stolen the, c- the car. Um, and um, I believe that that's generally what the aggravating circumstances are. Yeah. So that's, that's what he's facing if he's convicted. And interesting that in jury instructions this week, they added aiding and abetting. Yeah, because if the jury cannot come to the conclusion of first-degree murder, they would have to be able to say, well, wait a minute. Darren admits he was in the house. Darren admits he was there right, in multiple places, right? Admits that he was in the Porsche. Can we convict him then on aiding and abetting? And, and does that carry a life uh, sentence as well? And clearly the defense was unhappy about this they said yeah because it's a lesser included because they wouldn't want that right right. because they either it's first degree murder or nothing here's here's where i think this is very interesting first of all from the prosecution standpoint now you're adding aiding and abetting does that mean you're not confident in your case from the defense standpoint well wait a second you can't have it both ways you can't say from your defense there were other people involved and then say, but wait, you can't add an aiding and abetting charge. Typically, prosecutors will add a number of charges just in case. It's standard. You know, it's, you're charged with first-degree murder. You're charged with second-degree murder. You're also charged with voluntary manslaughter or manslaughter. It's not, that's not unusual. Right. There's no way to know at this point how long this is going to drag out. And I... I don't know if you in your – we've always said this. We're not going to second-guess the jury. No. But generally, if we, get a, if we get the call quickly, what does that mean? If they call us quickly and say there's a verdict. Oh, my gosh. That means to me that they've elected a foreman. Foreman says, how many of you believe he was guilty? And everybody puts up their hands. And then they say, well, let's have lunch, and then we'll return the verdict. There are a number of forms they have to fill out <laughs> oh, and sure. things like yeah, that. Yeah, but. Yeah. but I think this jury, um, and as the judge said yesterday, that there's a lot of evidence that's going to go back to the jury. Right. Room, I was not there right? for her talking to the jury. So she yeah. addressed them when they were done she, with the cases? She Tell did. me about that. She said, um, I'm going to read you some instructions, and then I'm going to send you home, and then you're going to come back on Monday morning, you're going to get some more instruction, and then we're going to go to closings. But out of the earshot of the jury, she was talking to Laura and Judith and saying they have a lot of stuff that they're entitled to view and look at and go through that will go back to the jury room that they're entitled to look at. So, And one thing that you we'll see if you go into the courtroom is that there's a long table that the prosecution has and they have binders binders. binders. oh my god binders with thousands and thousands of documents in them so the jury's entitled to that stuff so you know they could go through that but what's going to be interesting i think if we watch uh once they get the case and once they start deliberating is what questions they ask. Yes. That's, that's always insightful. And, and we're entitled to hear what those questions are. It's, if you're sitting in the courtroom, uh, you know, generally what happens is you'll see, you know, rush down the hall, the prosecution, the defense is coming, and we'll go, what happened? And they'll go, we got a note. They go in, and then the judge will generally read the note out loud. Well, generally what they'll do is the, gem- the, the, the note will be read up at the bench or will sh- they'll okay. see the note. Prosecution and defense will look at it. Then they may talk amongst themselves and then they'll call everybody in and then the judge will read the note. And then they'll say to the defense or the prosecution, well, what do you want to do? And then they'll debate as to how to answer that question. And then the judge will take that under advisement, write it out. And then read it back to both sides to say, do you agree with how I'm answering you? And then generally they'll say yes, and then they'll send that note back to the jury. 
and then we in the media will all like run outside to yeah. try to get to our live positions to tell right. everybody what's happening. Or tweet it. We are we are <laughs> going to be covering it all next week. I hope. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that something's going to happen next week, one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. Nobody likes it to drag on for weeks and yeah. weeks, right? That that's not a good sign. It depends on. But there is a lot yeah. of evidence in this case, though. Yeah. We should say that. Yeah. Uh, trying yeah. to read the signs. I do We're all looking not, for something. Yeah, do not try and guess what a jury's going to do. Uh, now, I'll tell you one thing that's going to be a little interesting is that they're going to have to release three of the jurors who are alternates. And uh, she did announce out of the earshot of the jury who who they are, what number seats they are. Oh, okay. So I have my chart. We'll, we'll I'm go, not going to say that because we'll, we'll somebody might the, hear it. No, you and I will go through that. You're going to tell me which ones because I have my chart. I know who they all are. Yeah. So uh, they're not going to be happy about it. I've seen this happen before when jurors get released after sitting through a long trial and, and they're Darn, you know, they wanted to see through. They wanted to see the outcome, right? And it's, they're unhappy. And, but generally, once they're released, it depends on what the judge says to them. You know, the judge might say, please don't uh, discuss your your, uh, uh, experience here until the um, verdict is in, or... I would think that that's fair. I think it's fair, too. Um, but she may say, you are free to go. You can discuss the case with anybody you want. But the jurors might then say, eh, I don't want to do that. It might mess things up, you know? Yeah. So Closing arguments, Monday. Yeah. Probably go all day. All day, I'm sure. Because uh, what happens is they're not starting until 9.30, 9.45. She's got to read some instruction. Then Laura gets to do hers. Mid-morning break, Mid-morning lunch break, break afternoon lunch break, break. Judith does hers, and then the government gets another bite at the apple. They do. Again, they get they, to come back they, with a rebuttal, they get a uh, rebuttal, rebuttal statement, they get the, argument. Because they have the burden of proof, so they get a second shot at it and drive home the points that the defense may have brought out. So it could even go into Tuesday morning. Um, I, I think a lot of people would hate to see that because uh, it's been so long, right. but... Uh, um, I, I figure they'll probably finish by Monday afternoon, I think. All right. Well, Paul and I will both be there. So please, this is our last podcast for the the testimony part of the trial. We'll definitely be here next week to talk about what's going on, closing arguments and such. But we will also be covering this during the day. So please uh, stick with us on Fox 5 News, in morning coverage afternoon and evening coverage. I know everyone's going to want to see what is going on. Stay with us on our Fox 5 Facebook page as well, the Mansion Murders Trial Podcast. Thanks so much once again for joining us on this Friday. Paul Wagner, thank you so much. All right, Mel. We'll see you next week.